Hello and welcome to the EdSurge podcast, where each week we look at how education is changing. I'm Jeff Young, a reporter and an editor here at EdSurge. How can educators make their teaching more inclusive? That question has only gotten more pressing and more challenging in this time of social unrest and political polarization. For some perspective and some advice, I recently talked with Jose Wilson, co-founder and executive director of EduColor, a nonprofit advocacy group dedicated to issues of race and social justice in education. He is also the author of a deeply personal and compelling book called This Is Not a Test, a new narrative on race, class, and education. You might also have seen his blog, uh, where he regularly talks about his experience teaching math in New York City public schools, and that's at his website, thejosevilson.com. This conversation, it took place last week at the ISTE 20 conference. In full disclosure, ISTE is the parent organization of EdSurge. We are an independent journalism project within ISTE. So we had a great audience of educators, and, and they asked some insightful questions, as, as you'll hear in this episode. So let's get to it. Here is my conversation with Jose Wilson. I want to start by rewinding. As you started your teaching career in New York as a New York City teaching fellow, um, you write in your book that you actually had a mentor in the summer training program that said at the after you finished your summer of intensive training, he said to you, "I didn't, I didn't think you were going to make it. You're too idealistic." Um, and I, I guess I'm wondering, what do you think he meant by that? And how did you know? What did you take away from this? What What is this idea of a teacher being too idealistic? I think there's a lot of folks who get it confused when it comes to teaching in inner city schools. I think too often people had thought about teaching in terms of, you know, you have to be tough, you have to be mean and, you know, no smiling till December. And, you know, um, if you were to show some sort of like um, surface level care for children, then you necessarily weren't going to make it. So if you came in all happy and, you know, sunshine and rainbows, then you weren't fit to be, um, a teacher in New York City public schools, which is, you know, all concrete, ice, and mean mugging. Like, all, all the while, it's like, I actually came from the very hood that my kids were growing up in. So I fully recognize that this is a different sort of moment, right? And so um, being able to walk into a classroom and say to myself, yes, I can relate to the students, um, and I'm going to have high expectations for them, being that warm demander, as Gloria Latson Billings often likes to say, um, somebody who really is in tune with the children, always has that sense of hope because every teacher knows, and especially now in this moment in time, how critical it is for us to have that hope as the passenger seat and then the cynic as the backseat driver, but hope is always right next to me as I'm teaching. What I find is that um, back then, especially, people were trying to train you to kind of be that agent of the state, the person who was going to be super regimented and you know doesn't take any nonsense. And I'd say a little bit more, but I don't want to use too many of those words. But <laughs> long story short, I feel like because of that mentality, it allowed for so many people to say, well, Jose isn't going to make it because he cares so much about kids. And so as a result, he's probably going to drop out within the first few when you know reality actually starts crashing in on him all the while. I'm like, no, actually, I'll probably make it real far because I have these two tensions in mind and I already have that background knowledge as it, as it is. So I, I'd be good, pretty good at teaching as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I want to actually 
um, flesh that out a little bit because you write in your book in kind of gory detail about that beginning time for you as a teacher. And I've talked to a lot of first year teachers and you're not certainly not alone. It's the story that I hear of just how hard it, it, it really is. And, but for, you know, you're actually sharing all this, the good, the bad, everything that you went through in your book. And, and you mentioned that at the beginning, you felt like even if your, you know, craft was rough or new, that your students were responding to you and could kind of tell that you really cared. And yet you saw other colleagues, teachers in the same, maybe with the, of the same set of, of kids as they move from subject to subject throughout the day. Uh, another teacher there that the kids were kind of running from, they felt like this teacher kind of almost had a disdain for the, the students. And I guess I wanted to dig into that for a minute and talk about this idea of, of, of I guess, you outlook or attitude that you were getting at a minute ago. But what is that distinction that some teachers maybe carry of, of, of versus what you are trying to come in with? I think what people really need to recognize is that throughout the book, I'm very judicious about trying to judge teachers too much. Like, that's not my point. My point is to assure that everybody can actually grow into the profession. What I recognized immediately when I walked into the school building was that there was an understanding of what a teacher was supposed to be doing, how they were supposed to relate to kids, and how they were going to be the enforcer all the time. Uh, all the while, I said, actually, I could probably do this a lot differently and I could still get what I need, which is making sure that my students felt like they were welcome in the classroom, as well as that they were being well-educated. It's not an either or, it's a both and. And so when I was teaching my students, I found that I had to be necessarily the leader so that they would get at least some sort of consistency uh, throughout their day, especially because of the students who I was given. The students who I was given at the moment, mind you, you know, one of the classes which was truncated to about 10 to 15 students on my first day. And then they had this other class who they were all the kids who nobody else wanted and they put them all in one class for somebody to deal with. Then they said, oh, wait, we don't have the number. So we're just going to merge the the worst two classes and put them all in one. And it's like, okay, so, I mean, and they, they were pretty blunt about that part. So I said, okay, how am I going to reframe what I have to do in my own classroom to ensure that they get the best experience possible. And then all, you know, that was just me chipping away at so many of the, I guess, stereotypes that there was about what it meant to be a teacher at the time. Uh, me smiling before December, I smiled a couple times, sure. Um, did I make math engaging? Absolutely. Did I give them projects? Absolutely. Did I try to make sure that they had manipulatives when they were entrusted to do so? Absolutely. Um, in fact, I was very much like, okay, I'm going to be messy in front of y'all, but you know, the exchange is that I can trust you. And there were things I would leave on top of my desk and they never got taken. They said, oh, Mr. Wilson, that's yours, yada, yada. Like it, it was mind blowing. And these are the kids that were told that they weren't able to be trusted. So I said, oh, wait. So all I had to do was, you know, reciprocate that energy and I would get the same energy back and perhaps multiply too. And is it flawless? No, it isn't. Right. And I think I showed that pretty well in the book too. I think generally speaking, I was trying to set an example for so many of my colleagues to say, hey, we can do this differently where it actually aligns to the things that we believe about teaching and kids. And it doesn't necessarily have to be so regimented, so militaristic, doesn't have to uh, replicate whatever we believe about police. Right. Like that doesn't have to be a thing we could do better than what we what we've seen out there yeah I, I wanted to um i wondered in some ways if this is the heart in a way of at least the beginning starting point of of inclusive teaching yeah and 
how do you define it, right? I mean, some people may have different ideas of what that is as they're out here in our audience. How do you define it? Generally speaking, I like to think about it in terms of math. It's about belonging. It's about sets. And, you know, something that people recognize uh, if you, once you start getting into higher orders of math, whether it be logic or anything like that, is like there's set theory. And this idea of uh, what belongs, what doesn't. And then specifically, in my case, who belongs and who doesn't? And what are the characteristics of belonging and inclusivity that would really allow me to be the inclusive teacher, right? And I don't like using the word to define the word, so let me try to move the language a little bit. It is to say, right, that when you have a classroom, if you are in a public school, you necessarily understand that generally you don't have control over admission. So whoever you get is whoever you get. For, for one, you get an assessment of who they are as people, first and foremost. And I think that's, that's a good uh, starting point for the framework. Then the second part is you try to understand who you are as a person. And if you've been around teaching for like eight, nine years, by that point, you should know who you are as a teacher, right? Because that's, that's a different person than perhaps uh, who you are as a person, person. Like you're not doing all the same things, but you may believe in the same things, right? And then there's this third part where you say, okay, how can I adjust myself to better serve the people and the students who I try to address in point number one? And so when you think about that simple framework, then it becomes really easy to define who belongs and how you can make them feel like they belong. Again, is it going to be flawless? Not always, because it's one person against a whole ecosystem, a whole environment of things that may control or may change things in your classroom at any given moment in time. But I think what allows my definition to work is that you can be both flexible, but then make sure you have a set of pillars so that way you're not just floating away. You need something to anchor you at all times. And inclusive teaching is that anchor for me because it allowed me to be fluid but also have that anchor whenever I, I feel like I got lost somewhere, right? So, and, and I think because I have that framework, it allows me to work with any number of things, including discipline, including assessment, including even uh, how much homework I give and how many times I call parents. Like all of that is based on the three principles that I had just aligned, so. No, that's, a, I, that's helpful. And I think it's interesting that it seems like another aspect, which I don't think you just articulated out loud, but I think it, it's in there from your work that I see is it seems like it's a, it's a continual process, right? I see on your blog, for instance, you have this series of posts sometimes where you, you interview you, Jose Wilson interview, Mr. Wilson, the teacher. Yeah. And those are really fascinating because you really literally have this kind of dialogue with, you know, those, those two those two players in the game for you and trying to work it out. Am I right? Yeah. It's very Freudian in that way, isn't it? Like trying to figure out who the id, who the ego and the super ego are. And mind you, you know, when I first started because of the things I was still trying to figure out personally, like I was very in the id, uh, after school. So like <laughs> there was a lot of things involved in the book, which I'm sure you read, you know, my uh, proclivities around, you know, any number of drinking habits, etc. I think what helped me get to my higher self was that I was able to reflect every Friday and just sit there and say, hey, what did you do well? What did you not? Be honest. It's okay. Like, yeah, I, like there is no higher critic of my teaching than myself. And of course, yes, that's it. 
That includes my wife, who, mind you, who's Maria Rojas Wilson, a much better teacher than I am. Amazing teacher. Um, the things that she does is amazing. But having said that, right, I have to be worse than her as a critic in order for me to be better at what I do. And so I think having, you know, Jose versus Mr. Wilson is pretty much me saying, okay, really go look at yourself in a really critical way. Understand who you are. Don't get too hard on yourself where you're going to kick yourself out of the profession, but be just hard enough where you try to do better that next Monday or that next Tuesday, or you try to take those five seconds and ask yourself why it is that you did what you did, um, whether it was a good thing or a bad thing or whatever else in the gray spectrum, right? Those are all critical elements, yes? How did you come to start EduColor? <laughs> Great question, yes. Um, and actually, um, conferences like these were some of the inspirations. So, like, I remember back uh, 2012, I think it was, there was a TEDx conference, TEDx NYD, in fact. And there was a conversation around educational diversity within uh, education conferences. And I think I just blurted it out. I said, oh, so we need to make like an educolor to be a sort of clearinghouse for diversity within uh, the, the big major like education conferences. What we failed to recognize uh, until maybe like a year later is that almost every education conference was predominantly white. And a lot of that wasn't just a function of race, but also a function of class and where uh, people were staffed, where folks were coming from. So there were all these different elements at play. And so what I started to think about is, all right, what are some systemic things that I can help do in order to ensure that educators of color were able to be at the forefront of the education dialogue? And so EduColor reformed in 2014, where we started to really have discussions online around a race class education. Of course, shout outs to Black, uh, Black EDU, who was like the first real hashtag that had Black teachers and black people at the forefront. And of course, some of the folks like Hip Hop Ed, for example, shout out to Chris Emden, uh, Tim, et cetera, right? Like y'all were dope uh, in that sense too, uh, talking about hip hop and how to bring it to children. But with EduColor specifically, we said, how can we better inform pedagogy, policy, and advocacy for educators of color with students of color in mind? And so when we formed, we said, all right, we'll, we'll start a chat, great. Then it became like the, the convenings, Great. Then it became the big summits. Then it became like having little pockets. So wherever two or more of us were gathered, there was the educator space. So folks that actually build those conversations, even within a space like ISTE or a space like, you know, NCTE, et cetera. And now we're at a point where we're trying to organize more educators outside of different institutional spaces so we can have our own uh, healing and transformational space. So I think, you know, we're, we're at a point now where we are like that nonprofit 501c3. You can etc but also like a community of folks who are thinking about these issues really deeply and deeply hard and you know uh trying to like influence different policies along the way as uh we keep growing you know we're you mentioned conferences and we're we're at an edtech conference as we speak and yes. you have talked about that a little bit in your writings and you you even in your book you mentioned some kind of concerns about sometimes some proclivities of edtech and you, you wrote I'd rather have a school that uses only pencil and paper but teaches its kids very well than a school equipped with a billion and one glitzy doohickeys and thingamajigs that um, don't in themselves teach anything. Why not be authentic? I wanted to ask, do you think ed tech can actually get in the way of inclusive teaching? Yes. I mean, that. I think that's the easy part. I think that's a function of capitalism too because I think it'd be one thing if you said, well, the wall, where we stop, has to be 
be at a point where it starts getting a little too dangerous. And I, I think where EdTech can be well served, for example, is in trying to build more communities, especially across different uh, states, across different countries, et cetera, make it globally, actually globally connected. Unfortunately, where I think EdTech sometimes uh, gets a little bit too ahead of itself is doing things like facial recognition, taking too much data from students, trying to figure out how to capitalize off of and monetize off of anything that they were able to collect, private information, right? And we've seen that time and again. Um, and I do my best to be judicious about that because I think there is power in education technology. As someone who is a computer science major, I want my students to have access to all the things in the world. Like if they can have access to 3D printers, to, you know, iPads, any number of technologies. Um, I've seen kids get really excited when they get to touch the smart boards. And th that's great. Like, I'm happy to see that. And the more that we can engage kids in their own media, right, the way that they already engage in the world outside of school, then good for them. But then just trying to make sure that we don't have that overreach, right? And that's where, the, that's where it becomes a problem. It's like, okay, you've made enough money. Like, you should be able to hold on to that part, not get too far ahead of yourself where you're thinking, oh, wait. Like there's something else that I can incentivize here. So in the way that, you know, EdTech can kind of be a hindrance towards like student privacy and, you know, issues where it gets kind of uncomfortable where you're like, I don't really want to do this. Or there's another element too where, you know, sometimes the technology itself kind of inhibits um, inclusive teaching. So if you tell me, for example, that your product teaches kids how to do math, but it only does it in a very focused and hyper narrow way, instead of allowing kids to have multiple ways of thinking about that math, then that could also be pretty dangerous towards, you know, trying to actually get kids to think more exactly about math. Um, so if you're not, if, if you're developing a product that says, okay, I want to see multiple measures, I want to see the way you think, I want to see how you develop these frameworks. Great. Like, I want to see that. Uh, make it more complex, make it something that, you know, can actually be adjusted toward the student need, not make it something where, like, everybody feels like they have to do it the way that the computer says, or what the software says. Uh, those are things that I've seen already, but I think there are powerful tools out there that can definitely be used well, and I'm sure that most of the folks in the comments are like, yes, I use my tech well, and I know the boundaries, and that's a good thing. We need that. There, there was about a month ago, almost exactly um, about a month ago, there was a presidential election that everybody here is is well aware of, and yeah. it looks like we've got a new administration coming in um, next month, and there's gonna, there's a lot of speculation uh, about sure. who's going to be the next Secretary of Education because I right. mean a new one. And now, in a recent Forbes column, um, one of their contributors at Forbes, Peter Green, named you on his list of people that you know, would fit be the perfect ed secretary for the, for the moment. Um, his criteria that he laid out were someone who's been in public school as a teacher for a long time and who can quote delve into the big picture issues, the minutia and everything in between. And I think people hearing you or can see that you're, you're thinking that way. I guess I love that you engaged in, in a blog item about this. And, and, and so I know you thought about it, but what would be the first three things you'd do if in fact you got that call? Um, and we're leading the, the education department. Listen, I am blessed that I'm even like mentioning the conversation. Though I will say too that I, I'm pretty sure I'm not going to get it given the trend that he's going for in terms of folks who are careerists, folks who are very deep in the weeds of things, um, not someone who's you know been in the classroom for X amount of time. I can think very deeply, but I, I don't necessarily have like all the credentials, et cetera. But it's good to imagine. And so I'm going to go ahead and imagine anyway. So let's start imagining. 
I think the first thing I would love to do is set up a real good conversation around the diversification of the teaching profession. I think it's something to be said for saying to ourselves, we are at a moment now where not only did we just have a racial uprising in the form of Black Lives Matter, uh, but then we also have a real good platform for discuss for discussing culturally relevant, culturally responsive and sustaining education. And then we also have the majority now of our students are uh, people uh, are students of color. Right. And so a lot of our white students also need this sort of education. So this education is for everybody. And one of the ways that you do that is by trying to you know, diversify the teaching profession. It is not to say that we're going to get rid of every white teacher that's out there. It is to say, though, that we can expand and be more thoughtful about staffing and hiring to ensure that every child gets all the experiences necessary and to level the playing field for every single body. That might be the first thing I'd love to do. I think secondly, I want to talk a, a lot about how it is that we actually elevate the teaching profession as you know as very large. I know that in the very early on, early on going, I mean, two thousand nine. Um, Arnie Duncan had been doing a lot of research around uh, what international studies say for teacher salary. And then so so thinking about what that would look like to have a teacher that starts off, let's say, at one hundred thousand dollars and then build all the way up means that you're not just getting folks who already have generational wealth, but folks who are really invested in the long term benefits of being a teacher. Right. And of of course, that's also coupled with uh, the the movement towards canceling student loans, right? Like there has to be something, you know, for teachers who actually have sacrificed and said, "Hey, like I really want to do this forever and a day, but I can't do this because you know I need to kick money back towards you know my parents, my grandparents. I need to make sure that there's some money." I think being able to elevate the teaching profession in this way, and that includes national board certification at some point in time. There has to be something where we say, we gotta strengthen this up, and we need to not just mirror what's out there, let's say in uh, Finland or South Korea or any number of places where this thing is happening, but really do it in this American way where because this experiment that we're having right now, uh, <laughs> teachers are the vanguards of what America believes. So if America, wants to have great teachers, it necessarily has to reflect that within the society. And conversely, in order to have a great society, we need to have great teachers at the fore. And so in the ways that we can do that and make sure that they are able to be in that sustainability phase, we'll be doing real good work. I think third, though, I would really love to attack discipline. And I, I want to be very thoughtful about this, too, because uh, Representative Ayanna Presley had uh, put forth the push out uh, I think it was a push out bill and it was um, reflective of Monique Morris's work. Shout out to both of them. Right. Because we also recognize that, yes, there's uh, disparate issues when it comes to uh, black children, specifically and Native American children as well. But specifically, black girls are really going through it right now. So that can be a really good framework for how we discuss discipline and corporal punishment, which, by the way, is still legal in uh, dozens of states all across the, the country. Those those are three things that we can start acting upon very, very early in the first three or four years. And we can go we can bypass this idea of bipartisan support in the name in the name of human rights and really being thoughtful about how we're going to rebuild this nation to uh, best reflect our best values. Well, I, I hope people are out there listening who are making these decisions on who should get it. But thank you for for sharing that back to a very practical matter of people in the classroom today. Um, what are your advice? What are your, some practical tips people can do? And I know you, you know, we're teaching in the pandemic, like everybody, especially for this moment, right? Which you just referenced a minute ago. I mean, we're, this is not 
normal in any way. It was already hard, and now we've got the pandemic on top of it. Um, so, what are some what are some advice for how to how to you know affect inclusive teaching under the incredible strain we're in right now? I think teachers who are of like mind understand that relationships are one are at least one of the pillars that we rest upon when it comes to this work we call inclusive teaching, right? Or culture responsive teaching, whatever have you. So for me, I feel like if a bunch of us are in a lot of different rectangles, and mind you, we're in a rectangle now. So, you know, we'll take that as as need be, right? But understanding that we can't necessarily teach 30 students on a screen at the same time in the way that we would in a classroom. We're not trying to replicate the classroom, uh, you know, bit by bit. Instead, what I'm going to recommend for everybody is that we find ways to not just scaffold, but also make tiers towards, you know, how we're going to approach this work. We have a bunch of students who are probably already self-motivated. We start making our videos, for example, and we say, all right, this is what I would love for you to watch. We make sure that the students watch it. We have an assignment that's aligned to that watching and let it be us. Like, don't let it be somebody else too, because I think that's the, that's the relationship part is saying to ourselves, all right, we're going to go ahead and make the video for ourselves. Not so we can, you know, get famous or whatever have you, but just because we really care about kids. Cause I think that's what a lot of teachers are doing right now. But then once we make the videos, then we say to ourselves, all right, um, how am I going to check in with kids? Maybe have, one session where everybody's there and they say, okay, which of which of my students actually have it? Make an informal assessment. And out of the students who have it, you say, okay, cool. Here, try this assignment. And then uh, the students who don't get it, you start making little by little. Like you start segmenting them off. So for me, what I found was really helpful was having maybe one big session of like 30 students. And then over time, I started to segment them into maybe a group of 10, group of 10, then five, three, one, one. Right. So it wasn't 30 students. It was 30 students, but it wasn't 30 students. Right. And so I, I was granted a lot of leeway in order to do that. And of course, I also had intermittent measures. So I would do things like, hey, how are you doing? Like I would just put up questions that I was to do now and just be like, hey, how are you doing? It's like, OK, good. Oh, here's a riddle. I would love for you to solve it. And then we try to solve it. And then the kids who weren't participating in those initial uh, academic conversations, I'd pull them in and say, hey, so by the way, you know, you, what's up with this assignment? Like you're missing it. I don't know what's going on. It's not that you're lowering your expectations. It's that you're transforming and changing what it means to have the high expectations. Because again, like COVID is was wild. COVID is wild. That's going to happen. And we as educators are always going to know how to adjust our lesson plans according to situations. And I don't expect anything different when it comes to uh, a global pandemic. So it sounds in a way like you're able to personalize, which is something that goes back to the very beginning, but even segmented personalization that fits into this odd groupings, you know, like that you're forced to do because of the pandemic to do quality teaching. But then it also plays into this idea of actually adjusting to meet the needs of those those students in front of you. Absolutely. And what's more, you can still continue to have a community, right? So it's not just that I'm working with 30 individual students is that like they all also have the understanding that I'm trying to work with the students in little bits. But then as a collective, I try to find the things that I see trending with so many of them. So I'm working not just personally, but also through a community of understandings. So I'm going to read a couple of questions because we do have some great ones coming in. Thanks, everybody out there. Um, so Karina um, Monroe asks, how do we diversify our teaching staff now? 
which goes to one of the points you were making, obviously, in your wish for some future policy. But how does it happen today? What is what can we do? I think there's three great things we can start doing immediately. Obviously, one of them has to be some sort of loan forgiveness. I know that states can start doing that through budget. So if there was a way for states to take on some of that responsibility while we wait for the transitions to happen, then I think that could be really a powerful tool to assure that teachers who are coming in also feel that because there are teachers who um, have that generational wealth and some who don't. And predominantly the folks who uh, do not have the generational wealth end up being our black and brown teachers, our Native American teachers, et cetera, right? So thinking about that policy would be real powerful. I think second is utilizing uh, students as your public relations people. I think um, where folks really learn about your school is through the kids themselves. They're the ones who gossip about your school. They're the ones who promote your school well. So when I knew I made it as a teacher, when parents who I didn't even know were coming up to me, like at the grocery store saying, hey, I want my kid to be in your class. Like those, that was a real powerful thing that I didn't recognize until that moment. I said, wait, like I had never met them, but because of the experiences I was giving to my students, they had already knew how to gossip about me all over the place. So they were like, oh, Mr. Wilson, the best teacher in the building, yada, yada. And of course, I take that kind of with a grain of salt too, because, you know, like from day to day, that can kind of change depending on like what's happening. <laughs> but overall, it still provided a really powerful lens for that. So if you want to diversify your school, then chances are you probably need to start talking to kids too about how they would promote the school. Third, obviously, has to be a, a staffing conversation. And I think that's where it gets kind of difficult because, you know, when you do try to recruit and you try to find ways, I think uh, when people come into the school, they want to know that they feel welcome. And th those, those are things that it has, it has to be a conversation that the whole staff has together. Uh, what are the ways and means by which everyone relates to one another? Because what we also recognize, too, thanks to, uh, I think it's uh, Richard Ingersoll's work, he noticed that. Yes, we are at the highest clip of teacher diversity in terms of recruitment, but are there also so many of our teachers of color are leaving at a faster clip than their white counterparts at this point too. So it's it's a really it feels dichotomous in a way, right? But it's also to to the point where teachers of color need to feel welcome. They need to feel like their experiences also matter. Not to say that they have to be above everybody else's, but it is to say that everyone needs to be very conscientious of the school environment that they've created for other adults, right? And so if we can have those conversations, I think we'll be in really good shape. And then, you know, recruitment won't be such a problem when you have one, two, five, six people like coming into the school and feeling welcome in that school. No, I, I, that, that makes good sense. And um, another question from Barbara Bray, too many schools are mandating test standards and grades and expecting teachers to teach the same online as they did face-to-face. -face. How can we change this so administrators understand that this is not possible in a global pandemic? I think, see, and that's this thing, right? Like administrators often are also given kind of like those, those horse blinders. I hate to use that kind of word, but that's pretty much what it is, right? Like, Admit, and I live, that's why I live with an administrator. So this is why I'm saying what I'm saying is that however hard it got for teachers, it got that much harder for administrators to do their job. So I think, I think a note of empathy is always important. And it's also critical 
for teachers within school buildings to come together and have those conversations together and have them honestly and not just say, well, we got to back down because that's what the administrators said. And I know that we have a lot of different contexts, too. So we have charter schools, we have independent schools, we have private schools. Right. And, you know, everybody has their own understanding of what collective bargaining might mean or, you know, how they can make collective demand. So I get that. But there has to come a point where, you know, if we want this teaching profession to be sustainable, then it has to necessarily inform the collective of the teaching body. So if the, all the teachers come together and say, hey, this would make a much better experience for students if we did X, then I think it'd be really hard to deny that if everyone gets on the same page around what that looks like. And even the folks who are working super hard and telling everybody, oh, I got this, I got this, then they end up like leaving in the next couple of months. And then that becomes a problem too, because the burnout is super real across the board, regardless of race, class, gender, and because of all these different identity markers too. So collect them. Get together, like have something where you can have those real conversations and then have a platform that you can present to your principal and a proposal, because a lot of them don't just want to hear the problems. They want to hear what are you going to do in terms of what. I, and of course, I already gave you a framework for how to approach that conversation. So if you want to take that that conversation, sample it by all means, and then think about how pro, what programming would look like if you uh, try to personalize this relationship through this pandemic while we still try to get everything else together. So the so from the framework to the very specific, Shannon um, Steimel asks, what is something I can do in my classroom tomorrow to ensure more inclusive teaching? Okay, I think what, here's what I would do. I think the first thing is, and again, you don't have to be, <laughs> I'm wild, so I get this. And I think I love intermixing my do now questions. So I may do like a riddle and it will be like a, a ridiculous math riddle or something, or maybe I'll find something on the internet and I'll have the students react to it because that's a measure of engagement, right? Because again, it's not high, it's not lowering your expectations, it's differentiating your expectations to try to figure out how best to, uh, you know, address their modality. Because remember, you're going into their house, right? That's, that's a different uh, sort of mindset that you need to have um, immediately. So that's the first thing. Then the second thing is, again, making sure your videos are well and good, making sure you're super energetic about them. Uh, if you're somebody who's like the sit down teacher, then, you know, you got to be the energetic sit down teacher. If you're the stand up teacher, make sure you have good audio, make sure you have good video while you're doing that. Make sure that like you could try to find a way to at least replicate some element of what you would normally do in the classroom. So I ended up buying myself uh, a whiteboard because that's my thing. Everybody knows that as a thing that I do. And I'm able to give my three examples and the kids are like, oh, that's something that he already does. So I, I was able to do that because of that connection. Um, in terms of other things, I think as long as you find some time within, let's say, you know, the 30 minutes that you have with them, the 45 minutes, whatever have to say, hey, like, I really care about everybody as human beings. So if you want to drop maybe one word into the chat that says uh, how you're doing, then I'd love to hear that. Like, that's that's a real simple thing you can do. And I, what we've taken some meetings that I've done, for example, is um, I'll ask everybody who's in the meeting, hey, uh, tell me um, what your favorite color is, something simple. Or for the adults, I'll say, okay, what's your favorite conspiracy theory? Drop it in the chat. 
<laughs> and I got a lot of conspiracy theories, mind you. So those are just small things, and they seem like they're not related. But then you start really to get to know them as people. You really get to know them because uh, the folks who actually chime in, they're like, oh, well, this is a whole different tack. Like, tell me more. Tell me what you're trying to do. Uh, and in that way, you're kind of persuading them to come in, even when you don't necessarily have a classroom, you are making the classroom by building those relationships and trying to persuade them to come in. So in the ways that you can do that, then you're all, you're, you're doing great. Well, thanks. And it, and it ties it back to some of the very first things that, that we talked about. And, and I think even in this, uh, you're modeling it even today with, I appreciate, I feel like we're getting to know you a little bit and certainly people read your book, which they should, um, they, they will get to know you even more and read your blog um, at the josevilson.com. Um, we are almost out of time. I wanted to to actually let you give uh, give you a chance to let us know what you're up to now because you're doing another a kind of a change right now where you're headed to or you're headed to grad school and are already in it doing some uh, Columbia. Um, and, and would you tell us about this phase of your of your journey um, that you're up to now and what you're focusing on? Well, I have two elements happening kind of at this. Well, two of many, because I'm also a father to an eight year old Alejandro, who is also going through virtual school. So I'm actually that parent as well, that public school parent who sent my child to the public schools that and his teacher is amazing. As far as I'm concerned, she's great. Shout out to Miss Harrison if she's uh, she's going to get to watch at some point. But um, for my professional side, I am still the executive director of EduColor. So. You know, when I am not doing any number of things, I'm trying to make sure that I advocate for policy that's more inclusive to make sure that every teacher, not just my um, educators of color, though, my educators of color often take priority because of the interests within this conversation. Um, we're trying to really build something within New York City. And so uh, my next event is actually going to have uh, a state senator, uh, Senator Jessica Ramos, along with a uh, professor Yolanda Sili Ruiz, world famous uh, professor around these issues. So we're going to have a big event kicking off on December 11th. Along with that, though, I'm also uh, doing my uh, doctoral studies at Teachers College, Columbia University around sociology and education. So I've been studying um, all the dead white men, as it were, <laughs> the uh, the 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 Marks and the Engels and uh, all these other folks, as it were, I'm really trying to get a good understanding of how we can build a better culture that assures that so many of our students get the proper education they deserve. And I think one of the things that people really need to recognize, too, is that, like, the theory is nice. And then I'm trying to also, you know, reframe what the academic, I guess, the academic or the academics do in terms of pulling them into practice, try to create those spaces where we can have conversations between the theories and the and the, the, the practitioners so we can have really thorough conversations, especially for our students who so desperately need a better education, better teaching, et cetera. So that's what that's what I'm here for. Well, you have some fans in the chat, um, and I, I uh, really want to thank you for uh, for being here today and for sharing your perspective and your story and your advice. And we will see whatever you're up to. Um, uh, we will be watching and reading. And um, we also encourage people to, of course, uh, join um, both read your book and your blog, but also check out the Ed Surge podcast, where this will be um, will will be distributed next week as our regular episode for those who came in late, um, or if you just want to hear it again. 
and you can subscribe to that wherever you like or listen to podcasts. So honestly, thank you everybody for being here um, and for the questions and for the engagement and for, for thinking about these issues. Jose, I guess I, we, we probably have like a minute. Is there any, any closing thoughts um, that you have for, for our audience? Yes, I just want to be very thoughtful about this idea that, again, we as teachers at our best are already inclusive. We are already building relationships and we're already thinking about how we can best make sure that all of our students feel like they belong. And the ways that we can do that is by assuring that we live that lifestyle. It is more than the anti-racist book clubs. It is more than just trying to buy whatever hot's out there. You have to make sure that you live that life. And if you can live the life, then teaching that way will become so much easier. So the ways that we can continue to, you know, be thoughtful about the ways that we live, then we'll be doing the the, the good work towards teaching our students, especially our most vulnerable and our marginalized children. So thank you all for doing the work. Thank you for being part of the the the, the academy, the, the the great folks that teach out there, because we really need us. We really we all we got. So thank you so much for doing your your work. And of course, shout out to Jeff. Thank you so much for having me on this podcast as well. Uh, thank you very much. This has been the Ed Surge Podcast. Each week, we explore how education is changing with views from educators who are on the front lines. And next week, we are very excited to bring you the finale of our Pandemic Campus Diaries series. As regular listeners know, all semester long, we have been hearing intimate reflections from students and professors on six campuses across the country as they talk about the challenges they face as they try to keep education going during COVID-19. The semester is finally winding down, and we'll learn some surprising things about the folks we've been talking to, and we'll hear their thoughts about what spring semester might look like. To make sure to catch all of our episodes, please subscribe to the EdSurge podcast wherever you listen. And if you like the show, please take a minute to leave a rating or a review. Or, hey, leave both. These really help um, more than you might realize in getting the show recommended in the algorithms on podcast apps or tell a friend about the EdSurge podcast on social media. Today's episode was edited and produced by me, Jeff Young, and you can find me on Twitter at jryoung. Thanks, as always, to the entire Ed Surge journalism team and our managing editor, Tony Wan. Thanks for listening, and talk to you next week. Mm-hmm.